Hello, everyone. Here, I would like to welcome the audience on behalf of the uh, Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists. My name is Fatima Masjidi, an academic activist, a member of the Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists based in Berlin. I would like to um, welcome the speakers and introduce them first. We have Sarah Abbas in our uh, uh, panel today, doctoral candidate in political science and a feminist who researches social movements in Sudan. She has written for transition uh, magazine, Open Democracy and the Nation. The second panelist, Selma Omari, Algerian French member of the uh, new anti-capitalist in France. She's involved in anti-racist struggle as well as international solidarity. The third panelist, Julia Wallace, black anti-racist socialist activist and contributor for the left voice. She served on the South Central Neighborhood Council in Los Angeles, organizes against police brutality and in defense of tenants' rights, LGBTQ women and immigrants' rights. The fourth uh, panelist, Laura Al-Khatib, Syrian gender studies student and contributing writer for the Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialist website. One of her recent article is the Me Too movement in the Middle East and North Africa. And the last panelist, Frida Afari, librarian, translator, producer of Iranian progressive in translation and member of the Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists. She has published articles in English and Persian on the Middle East Marxist feminism and has taught community classes and socialist feminism. The format of the program today is two, uh, two hours for the panel to answer questions. 30 minutes for the questions from the Facebook audience at the end, which can be sent to the Alliance Facebook page. The first question today goes to on, uh, only to uh, Sarah and um, Selma. Each of you have up to 10 minutes to answer this question. What is new in the Sudanese and Algerian uprising in terms of women's uh, consciousness, participation, organ organizing opposition to patriarchy and, and affirmative demands for women's emancipation? Sarah, please you go first. Um, hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot, Fatima, and thanks to everyone. I'm really looking forward to, to participating in the discussion. Um, I won't go very much into the background of, of, of the Sudanese revolution, which uh, began in December. We, we had a, another event, a uh, live stream event, a couple of months ago that we already discussed uh, a lot of what was happening. So in terms of, of what is new, um, there's a lot that has happened since uh, the beginning of June. Um, and the beginning of June was uh, when the military uh, and the militias, the military transitional council um, and the militias affiliated with it uh, that are also represented on this council um, uh, very brutally uh, 
ended the, the, the sitting, the two month sitting that had been taking, taking place by protesters and revolutionaries in front of the military general command in Khartoum and also in other uh, cities. So smaller sittings were happening in other cities. Um, this was at the very end of Ramadan, the sittings had been uh, going very strong and so the military very um, brutally uh, uh, repressed uh, these sittings. Um, many, many people were killed, uh, many were arrested. And in terms of particularly in relation to women, there was a policy um, of using uh, uh, rape uh, and sexual assault as a weapon of war against women protesters. Um, so during that time, we saw um, uh, many uh, situations where um, militias, when I say militias, I mean the, the Janjaweed um, RSF militias, whose leader sits on the Transitional Military Council, um, uh, assaulting women on the street, uh, raping women, as well as men. There are reports that men are also raped although that is very much of a taboo subject. So uh, there haven't been any men, as far as I know, that have come out and spoken about that. Um, and, and there are also um, women that are still missing to this day since those since June 3rd and the days that followed. Um, that, uh, I believe that that uh, tactic, the main purpose of it, uh, was to try to put a stop to the participation of women in street protests in Sudan. Um, women have been one of the kind of driving forces of this revolution. They have been at the forefront of it since December. And there's almost, you could almost say that there is a kind of social revolution also happening along with the political one in the sense that, especially during the days of the sitting, you saw that women were also uh, spending the night at the sitting. This was a 24 hours a day, seven days a week sitting of occupying that space. And uh, families had become increasingly uh, more comfortable with also allowing uh, the women in their families to go, which for us is, is, is different. Um, this is something that we have never seen to this scale before. They sort of at the beginning of the revolution, um, a lot of especially young women, Sudan is predominantly composed of youth. A lot of young women sort of had to sneak out of home in order to participate in the protests. But as the protests uh, picked up momentum, and particularly as the sitting picked up momentum and the occupation picked up mo momentum, you saw that um, you know you'd find you know sometimes uh, women and their mothers and their daughters and, and and many members of the family actually being on the in the protest site, and so I firmly believe, and I think a lot of Sudanese feminists share this belief that. Uh, you know, it's not the first time that rape has been used as a weapon of war, of course, in the war affected areas in Sudan, like in Darfur, uh, Nuba Mountains, and, and Blue Nile, women have long been subjected to, to, to rape and to sexual assault. And this had been brought into uh, the, the site of the protest in Khartoum as a way of silencing women. Um, it didn't work. Um, of course, it has it's caused a lot of pain and to this day we don't have anyone account held accountable for that or for the killings that took place. But um, there were some very difficult weeks. Uh, it was unclear because also the, uh, the internet had been shut down, um, whether the protest would continue at all, um, and particularly whether women would come out in the protest. And um, uh, there was a, a, a mass strike, um, which was successful in the weeks following this. But uh, the really important day was June 30th, uh, where a very big protest took place 
um, in Khartoum and uh, smaller protests took place elsewhere where women were just as represented as they were, that they came out and actually in the nightly protest in the neighborhoods leading up to this and kind of mobilizing for this protest, it was also really moving to see that uh, women, although many were afraid, still um, insisted on continuing their struggle. Um, what is important to say is that um, this violence has not stopped the negotiations between the opposition political forces, uh, the, the forces for freedom and change, um, and the Transitional Military Council. And uh, in fact, uh, there has been a political agreement that was reached, a kind of power sharing agreement between the military and the forces for freedom and change. And just like last night, we got the news that the constitutional agreement was also reached, which in theory would usher in a period of uh, three, just over three years transition period. Um, and uh, there has been also a lot of um, struggle around this issue of women's representation. Uh, because as strongly as women have been represented on the streets, they have not been well represented in the negotiations. So in the political process, the sort of elite political process that's happening. And there, we saw at some point a retreat from one of the demands of the Declaration for Freedom and Change, which is the, the primary document that kind of encapsulates the demands of the, 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 the revolution that has a, a wide legitimacy on the street. And one of the core demands in that is an end to all forms of discrimination um, and, and oppression against women. So through that, the, the, the revolutionary movement was, uh, is, was committing or is committing to uh, dealing with that as a core issue going forward in the, in the sort, of, sort of new Sudan, right? And we saw a kind of retreat in that as the political negotiations happened, which of course is not new. You often see in many movements that women are the backbones of a lot of these movements, but when we get into the high level political processes, the division of seats, the decision on who becomes minister and who sits in the parliament and who sits in our case on the transitional Supreme Council, then you see this kind of attitude coming sometimes even from comrades, from male comrades who have been there day in and out, standing shoulder to shoulder with women on the street, basically saying, you know, you need to step back now. Thank you very much for uh, everything you've done, but uh, uh, we'll take it from here. And so Sudanese women have very much resisted um, this kind of marginalization and uh, have done two important things in the last weeks. One was uh, basically holding um, public protests which, in which many men also participated and to the credit of the Sudanese Professionals Association, which is leading the forces for freedom and change. They have also backed this and called for it. There have been many stands around the country that are essentially standing with women who have been raped, many of whom could not say that they have been raped, many of whom are suffering in silence from this to say not only that we um, stand with you, but that you deserve justice. Um, and this has been important because there is so much focus on what we in Sudan call the martyrs, the, the, the people who are killed, shot and killed. Some of them are women, but many of them are men or the majority of them are men. And, and so this was uh, important to stand up to also a culture that tends to stigmatize and to um, marginalize and shame women for being sexually assaulted, right? Rather than shame their uh, victimizers. And so this is important. There was a lot of messages there saying you are, you know, to these women, you are 
whole, you are respected, you are valuable, you are our comrade, and we stand with you. And uh, I mean, as much as I have a problem with the politics of wholeness and purity and all of these ideas, I have to say that it is important in that context to say that because normally, you know, we have had cases in the country where women who have been sexually assaulted or raped have been, you know, either you know, kicked out of their families or forced to marry their rape rapists in some cases. So it's been a very important move, I think, to, to essentially put the blame on the victimizers rather than on the victims. And, um, and in that, I really want to, you know, bring attention to Sophia Ishag, who a young woman member of um, Grifna Social Movement, who a few years back in the protest was uh, gang raped by security forces, uh, by government security. And she is, to my memory, or at least in my lifetime, the first woman that, woman that decided to come out publicly and speak about her rape. And it, it really cost her a lot. She had to flee the country, but it was a massively important moment. And I think, you know, in revolutions, we tend to forget uh, all the struggles and the sacrifices that were made to get us to this point. So I would say that um, right now, one of the, you know, I mentioned that the, that the stands again, the stand in support of women who, who have been raped and calling for justice for them is one important um, aspect of what the women's movement has been able to do in Sudan in, in recent weeks. The other is there have been uh, a lot of agitation around the representation of women in the transitional structures, whether it's the government or the parliament or on the Supreme Council. Um, there has been uh, a demand for 50% representation, and this demand has is very loud, and it's coming mostly it's uh, to a to an extent at an elite level in that it's coming um, with it's coming from um, mainly women who work with organizations like the Sudanese Women's Union, which has been banned for many decades under the dictatorship. It's a it's a left wing organization that dates back to the 1950s um, that has you know, played a really important role at that time and the 50s and 60s in securing for women very important rights. Um, uh, and uh, they had, were banned uh, in the dictatorship in the 1970s. And you could see that organization kind of co recoalescing or reforming, as well as some smaller associations that are also coming up. One very important one, really almost in the last days, is um, the, the association of young Sudanese women. And that's important because um, there is a kind of generational gap often between women in the Sudanese Women's Union and the youth, uh, the women, the young women who are out on the street. And so this is an attempt by young women to also have their voices heard and to, to agitate for uh, what they believe is important in this transition and for their vision as well. Um, I would say that the, there is still a, a strong weakness, which is that we have a very strong uh, uh, class division there because a lot of the very active uh, women in the women's movement tend to come from um, the professional uh, unions and the professional and middle classes um, that are mostly Khartoum centered, but not wholly, who very much are standing with women in rural areas and in the war areas. But though voices of those women do not get as much of a platform in Sudan. So they are often represented by these women rather than representing themselves. So I don't want to make it sound like some kind of uh, utopia because I think um, if you look at it intersectionally, we have a, a hell of a lot of work that we, we still uh, need to do. 
Um, in terms of this deal, I mean, of course, the biggest concern is that uh, this movement from the beginning has been calling for a civilian uh, transition in a country that has been ruled by the military for all but 11 years of its uh, post-independence history, so since 1956. Um, and we, the, the transition forces a kind of uh, power sharing with the military. Um, and so that, of course, raises several questions. The military is one of the biggest, and the militias as well, are one of the biggest sources of violence against women. The security services and the police have also been, um, through public order laws, uh, policing how women dress, where women can go, and so forth, have been incredibly um, abusive. And this partly explains why women have been so active in this revolution, because they have a lot at stake, and they have suffered a lot in the particularly in the last three decades. Um, so the question is, you know, at the moment that we're facing is what's gonna happen to the street movement now that there is going to be this formal transition? How will women be represented in these structures? Who makes these decisions? But also, um, does the fact that the military now become a part of uh, this government, um, what does that do for issues of impunity, for having to face the crimes that uh, have been committed against women, including the rapes, including the fact that we are still missing, there are still women that were at the sitting, for example, from the um, Association of uh, Food and Tea Sellers. You know, so this is an association of women who work in the markets who have been very important uh, organizing themselves, but also have been very important in supporting the revolution, particularly during the days of the sitting. There are still members of that organization that have not been found to this day. So, um, so the question that we are asking is, what will this deal? What does this deal mean in terms of all these uh, issues and in terms of uh, achieving justice for women and in terms of finding out who is still imprisoned, making sure that those people receive the, the 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 reparations that they deserve, that those that are missing are found, but also that those that have committed rape and and other forms of violence against women are also. Uh, uh, dealt with. And of course, um, you know, what, what is the kind of economy that we want to build? What is the kind of justice system that we want to build? Um, are we going to do this in a gender blind way that doesn't take into account the ways in which, you know, the justice system particularly has tended to victimize women and the ways in which the economy has also done that to women? And so these, there's a lot of questions at the moment, but uh, this kind of gives the, a sense of, of where we're at, at least in the US. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I'll ask the same question uh, to Salma. Uh, Salma, what is new in Algerian uprising in terms of women's consciousness, participation, organizing, opposition to patriarchy and affirmative demands for women emancipation? Hi, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was looking for have some technical issues again. Uh, so concerning the question first, uh, I would like to assert the fact that the countries we are talking about are independent uh, for, I would say, 60 years, which is I would, which is a new history. So since the independence, the Algerian independence in 1962, it's the first time that we witnessed such a big movement, such a massive movement in which everybody is involved, in which uh, women take confidence, take to the streets, which is not 
you know, that the issue of public space is a universal problem within women's rights. And it's important to see people gaining confidence, especially women getting confidence within the movement. And uh, the, the renewal of feminism can only exist uh, through such a movement in which you have um, a liberation of uh, public, I would say, a public speech and uh, weekly demonstrations in every city. And it's a, I, I, I would like to assess on it because it's, Algeria, as well as Sudan, are very big countries with different regions, different dynamics. But the fact is that every week you have lots and lots of women taking up to the streets, talking with their own language, with different languages, but asserting their own, uh, I would say, agency um, uh, uh, as, as women. And this is where, and when it happens, uh, contradictions with the existing order uh, sprung up. So, uh, especially in the case of women, uh, the fact that they assert their place in the public space has raised uh, sharp debates uh, within the existing, uh, I would say, theoretic, what would say the existing practice, practices in which women are put aside and left in the, um, in the, in the, in the private, so-called private space. So, there is a sharp move, uh, an interesting move since the beginning of the Friday demonstration that was led up by uh, feminist groups. So those feminist groups exist for a long time. Uh, they raise up in the in the dynamic of the fight for independence and still exist as such. They assert also an independent feminist that is not well opponents say it is a Western import, but actually uh, femini feminism in Algeria is very much linked with women's participation and active participation in the fight for independence against the French trying to drag women's rights against, uh, against um, I would say, the, the independentists. So uh, it is important to say that because those movements have proposed to make um, a feminist block in every Friday demonstration so women can be confident to come to the demonstration, but at the same time, they are protected because they are organized and, and they assert their own demands because the lessons that's been, I would say, uh, learned from the past uh, experience is that only women can achieve women's rights. Independence, the, the independence movement was having lots of promises from women's rights, but in 1984, uh, within, within the whole general you know, idea that the state is our state and some kind of, well, I won't enter to the details, but in 1984 was clearly um, a break uh, from that promise, like we are all together, we're all brothers and sisters, is the family code that's been settled that um, really, um, I would say, states women's, uh, women's status as minors. So they don't have that much independence, actually, after the independence. So uh, to focus, two things in which uh, this feminist bloc focus 
on the demonstration, especially in the capital Algiers, but also in small scale cities, is that first we want social justice for women, and second we want the abolition of the family code, which is uh, which is not acceptable. And we have to understand that this movement is that is not that much organized as such, doesn't really have representatives. Uh, it is mostly a movement from below. It is still some kind of, it still has this spontaneous thing and this uh, relationship to power that is very, I would say, very, they don't trust, they don't trust anyone. They don't trust any way of like, they are trying to deal with people to say, okay, we had an agreement, but this agreement is not recognized among the people because it's not uh, the, the these people who reach an agreement doesn't don't have any had any link with the local the local dynamics. So within this dynamic, uh, feminist movement uh, has sprung up. Some collectives uh, started to exist in some cities. According to one of a feminist call, they had a national meeting. Seventeen feminist group had a national meeting. On the from the 20 to the 22nd uh, month of June, and made a statement, a global statement, um, calling for social justice for women uh, against the abolition of the family code, stating equal rights between men and women. So the interesting thing is that the movement gave confidence not only to 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 women locally to assert themselves on the streets, but help also some to shape some kind of national network of feminist mo movements that exist locally in smaller scale cities. And I think it's a promising dynamic that could spread. So you, you don't just end up with those classic this classic view of feminist bourgeois in big cities talking about rights in general, but from a simple idea that we need a feminist block within the demos, we went from that to um, national gathering of different groups and certainly people, these women are trying to reach more and more other, other women to participate within the movement. The other element I would like just to add, add is historical. The, 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 the fact that there are still uh, mujahidat, so women figures of the revolution that's never been dealing with the power. And they, they, they became uh, national figures of integrity. And those national figures of integrity that are still exist are women. That's an interesting point, which means that maybe there is something within women's, women's position, uh, the fact that they are still oppressed, there must might be some truth in it for the for the whole society and one of uh, the feminist uh, well she's a feminist as well but one of these figures she's been on the demonstration she's been supporting students she's been also very critical to uh, the, the the regime and the, and the militaries and the regime tries to buy her through lies, uh, so uh, actually they are trying to reach some kind of from above agreement with people whatsoever, because Algeria don't give a shit about them, and they 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 including her um, 
they included her in the list uh, of the names. And, and so the news spread very fast, like, whoa, she's, she's in the agreement. So maybe, don't know. And so she publicly, uh, she publicly criticized the regime for, for spreading such lies because she never accepted a deal with the, with the military or with the current regime for transition. So it has really created, I would say, um, some kind of, you know, it's been very, a very, I'd say a noisy, well, it, 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 it was big news because it was, it was clearly a lie, an attempt to buy her and it didn't work because she's not, she's not buying it. And she went to be in her letter very, very critical to the current state of the so-called transition. So I'm afraid like the way the transition has been dealt is not working because a woman stepped within, within this saying the, the truth. So there's, the, so, so, so yeah, um, still there are issues like women blogs have been uh, attacked so, several times in the demonstration, but they are asserting themselves. The interesting thing is that the movement helps to go to a better dynamic than, than the previous situation. And, uh, and just to conclude, so there are the, I, I think we're, we're living in a, an interesting moment, not just for German people in, gen, in, in general, but also for uh, the women's ability to to change the things within the movement from below and certainly not from above in, in the agreement that could exist and in which even uh, women's rights are not, uh, as, you, as Sarah said, uh, uh, when you reach an agreement from above, the first thing that really jumps off, <laughs> jumps off the agreement are women's rights and the, the right for social justice for women as well. So feminism is deeply, I think, I believe also that it's deeply rooted within the ability of the masses to organize by themselves and from below. And it's interesting to see that the renewal of feminism to the new generations takes this trend rather than trying to get a status, some kind of status from above. Well, I think I'm done with the first question. Thank you, Selma. Okay, the second question is, um, what can Sudanese, Algerian, Syrian, Iranian, and African-American women learn from each other's history and experiences? Uh, Sarah, would you like to go first? Um, I think there is a lot that we can learn from each other's experiences and histories. Um, I think if you look at the history of the women's movement in, in Sudan, there are sort of icons from these countries that have been important at some point or another as a source of inspiration. So someone like uh, Jamila Bouhrid in, in Algeria or someone like Angela Davis from the US um, were always particularly to the sort of educated um, feminists were always a, a kind of a source of interest and, um, and of inspiration. I think though that um, there is a great deal to learn. One of the things you see particularly in the, the revolutions that have sort of have swept across the Middle East and North Africa in the, you know, in the last, um, since 2011, 
Um, and Sudan is kind of somewhere in that region and sometimes not in that region, right? It's in this ambivalent position towards the region. Um, what is very interesting for me is that, and, and many feminists actually share this, unfortunately, this idea that these revolutions are unique. So in my opinion, while some of the conditions that have given rise to these revolutions are unique, by and large, we have a lot more in common than we do that in different terms of differences. And so this is where you see somewhat the nationalist discourse sort of distorting to a large extent, really the ability to, to look at what you have in common with other struggles and really try to understand that there is much that you can learn from each other, right? So it's not about who's doing it better, right? But it's really a question of how do we fight our uh, collective oppression, right? Because capitalism, patriarchy, um, colonialism, racism is affecting us in all of these contexts and militarism, of course, in many of the, these contexts as well. Um, but I think where you know feminists have been more, uh, I, I would say in some ways have had more of a, an incentive to try to link up to other experiences more than the average person in these struggles because of this sort of identity of a kind of sisterhood, a feeling of sisterhood towards other women. I do think that a lot of this, um, like the ability to really connect face to face has been limited to a particular elite, obviously, that is mainly the NGO elite in these countries or people that are able to academic elites or people that are able to travel that get invited to UN conferences and so forth. And I'm not taking away from their um, incredible contributions because I think a lot of they've, they've enriched the local struggles with the ability to connect with women from other regions and, 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 and sort of globally. But it still remains a kind of elite, uh, both an opportunity structure that is elite, but also a kind of conversation that remains largely elite that a lot of women are excluded from. So I would say that um, one, this has also been exacerbated by the fact that if you look at least in Sudan, both the regime as well as the US sanctions that were in place for decades have made it, and I think you know it, it's similar to Iran in, the, in some ways, that the, 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 this dual dynamic of the regime as well as the international order has really made it very difficult for women to speak across borders or for Sudanese women to speak across borders beyond the right? And, um, and you see it to this day that one arena that had opened that up and opened up that, that ability to reach out was the internet. And that is why our you know, military uh, regime has been controlling it quite heavily. Um, it's been partly people say it's to stop evidence from leaking out about the violations that they commit. But I think it's equally to stop the ability to communicate, not just domestically to organize, but also to, to communicate across borders. So I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think as internationalists, we need to do better in this regard, because I think you know, this is inbuilt into the way we think as socialist feminists that, that we, we, have a, we have a collective struggle and that we need to also do better to be able to connect uh, women of different Class, class standings of different, in our case, we also have massive racial and ethnic hierarchy. So the, you know, there's an intersection of race, of ethnicity, of gender, of, of class as well, that we need to do better in order to make these kind of 
space is possible and these kind of connections possible. And I think they would not only be a source of inspiration, but I think it would make people realize how much not only can they learn from each other, but how much they already have in common with each other. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Salma, um, what do you, uh, what uh, do you think what can Sudanese, Algerian, Syrian, Iranian, African-American women learn from each other's history and experiences? Yeah, um, so uh, first, I, um, I think it's, it, it's global. We are, we are talking about uh, femin feminist movements uh, that are, um, I would say, in the other side of the world, I would say, or, uh, has in inherited from anti-colonialist struggles. And I think that makes a, a clear difference. The, the issue is that our other feminists in Algeria uh, identifying themselves as such. I think it's a global question. Uh, the, 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 the complicated thing is also linked with, I'm just taking a step back because we're talking also about identity. What is Algeria? Algeria, is it, is it an Arab country? Is it an African country? Is it Mediterranean country? And I think on that matter, uh, if we need to learn about feminism, we should really turn the, fir the first turn, but that's my opinion, first turn towards Africa, uh, African feminist movements and even women's place uh, in society are so important for us to learn because we already know the, the Middle East we know it very well, we recognize it, we acknowledge it, but we, we, we don't, the reality today is that we don't know that much about uh, women's, uh, women's, women's movements in Africa. And it could be very inspiring because there's been lots of struggles, lots of trade union organizing. I'm thinking of countries like Burkina Faso for me, it's so important uh, for Algerian women to learn also how uh, women's uh, women's uh, women's rights has been asserted within revolutionary struggles and still going on. Uh, some kind of independent feminist that is just not just turning itself towards uh, European values or European white feminist values. It, it, it is important because uh, there's been for so many years women's rights has been used, uh, like in Tunisia as well as seen as, well, this is how, what can I say, some kind of a, the state has been using the women's body on both sides in the name of tradition, in the name of modernity. So in the name of tradition, that distorted uh, reactionary view that doesn't always fit with the reality that women's place should be at home, etc. Even traditionally, this is something that doesn't exist really. Uh, I'm talking about countrysides, places, you know, this idea of people are backward there, etc. Like this is not true. But the state's been using those ideas to draw a picture of their progressive modern women, very occidental, on the one side. Very bourgeois, and on the other side, those poor backwarded, they don't, they don't even know how to read, etc. People who have not that much culture and are rooted in their tradition. So you have like 
these two views and the state is playing on the two views, mixing up with Islam or modern, I would say modern, modern Islam. Well, it, it's a messy situation in which feminism has to exist within it. And, and it's been challenged, I think, within feminist movements. By the way, the bourgeois feminist movement made also huge mistakes in Algeria in the 90s, playing that game. And, 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 and it has changed. Just to give you a clear example, the question of the whale, the question of the whale is a big issue, I would say, since the colonization. But now I'm talking from independence because it's too much of a complicated story. But on the one hand, you have this double discourse from the state saying that, well, uh, women who are not vague, are not pure, don't have don't have values, don't have that stuff, etc. So they've been they've been using backwarded views to 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 shame women who are not wearing the veil. And on the other hand, when they had to repress the Islamists after uh, the cancellation of the elections in the turn of the nineties, they started to say things like, on the contrary, like veil is a is threatening is threatening the country. You have all these uh, conspiracy ideas that behind every veiled woman there is a terrorist behind things like that that awful, and sometimes some feminist bourgeois movements were buying it or having this I would say class uh, I would say the the they've been disparaging uh, veiled women saying that they are not educated etc. So. We are we, we we are kind of stuck between those two ideas and and, that, and that's an issue uh, I don't know to what extent other feminist movements had had to deal with maybe in, maybe it's been the case in Syria as well uh, it's a real question I, I, I'm I'm just asking about this divide of uh, that that's been set up between between women so maybe. I don't know. From what I've heard, uh, we can we can also learn and help to challenge those ideas. Well, I've been maybe very vague on to what to what to what extent um, to what extent other well Middle East Middle East movements maybe can help us deal with this contradiction that's been put up by the states. But on the other hand, if you want to see. Um, something new, something else coming coming up. Uh, I rather turn. I, I, I'm rather thinking about uh, about about movements in Africa. Uh, African countries are interesting, like countries like Senegal, for example. The, um, the the problem we have in Algeria is that we don't have that much. I would say it's very homogeneous in terms of religious affiliation. While in Senegal, you have uh, Christians as well as Muslims living together, and um, I would say like the, 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 so those attempts to, to divide people around supposed shared values uh, are, are not that much working. And at the same time, from the little things I know about. Uh, women's uh, women's agency in this con- in uh, in uh, in other African countries are very interesting as well. Uh, maybe I'll be more detailed about Tunisia because Tunisia within 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 Africa and at the same time in the in the Middle East is seen as a 
one of the most um, advanced um, country in terms of women's rights, as they recently got a law uh, in which they can benefit heritage uh, the same the same amount as uh, as men, and so you have this reputation of also Tunisia being at the forefront of feminist struggles. If we can say that we can learn things from there, maybe also uh, Tunisia has showed all, uh, how uh, women can 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 achieve their rights. But at the same time, uh, we are still stuck within this contradiction of. I would say these these divisions that they are trying to set up within women between the so-called bourgeois occidental way of life and the so-called uh, people from rural areas with backwarded ideas, etc., which is totally, which the, which is I think totally unfit to to the existing reality and and is not is not is not helping to. Is not helping to um, to, to 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 fight uh, around concrete. Uh, I would say concrete matches. Thank you, Salma. Julia, can you tell us uh, what can Sudanese, Algerian, Syrian, Iranian, African American women learn from each other's history and experiences? Yes. Um, firstly, thank you for Sarah and Selma for your insightful comments and information. I feel like I learned a lot and also saw a lot of parallels in terms of what's happening in the United States. Um, I think when we have events like this, we're kind of trying to play catch up in a way because you know, capitalism is international, so is patriarchy, so is imperialism. And we as socialists and socialist feminists need to be more international, more so, especially because it doesn't cost so much for us to be able to get together and to learn from each other and educate each other. And so um, watching on the one hand, the resistance that's happening in Sudan and the women leading these struggles, as well as the repression and the intentionally gendered um, repression that happens a lot in the United States as well. I feel like when we had especially one kind of pointed movement um, was in Ferguson uh, and people were getting the tear gas canisters and seeing that they were manufactured in Israel. And also that Palestinian uh, people were texting back and forth or using Twitter to communicate about how to um, protect yourself from these canisters. There's been a long tradition from black people in the United States to supporting um, the Palestinian struggle and being very clear on that and having a general view of Pan-Africanism, but not as much as a direct relationship with the revolutionaries and activists in those countries. And so that's something I feel like we can do more of, particularly because as women, we face these uh, oppressions as black people, as black women, we face a lot of these uh, intentional repressions and at the same time, tend to be at the forefront of these militant struggles. And I also noticed, I, I wrote down some notes, um, the kind of attempts to co-op democratic struggles. Uh, for example, we have people, like there's an issue of representation and there was a discussion about how we need more representation in these par parts of office. And at the same time, 
in the United States, we have people like Kamala Harris, who is a black woman. Her father is a Marxist economics professor um, from the Caribbean. And at the same time, she was an architect of some of the massive incarcerations of black people, particularly in the state I am, I live in, and I'm from California. And so there's this idea of representation and that's it. And, um, or we're against something or we want these other things, but, but actually it has to go deeper than that because capitalism and imperialism have these answers for that, for someone who looks like us, but has this politics of white supremacy and capitalism. Um, and even more so, you know, there's also someone mentioned the NGOs those folks oftentimes, uh, I know in the United States, probably in other countries too, they're funded by banks um, who've also taken some of the largest uh, theft of, of black wealth um, in the United States, but still at the same time, donate money or give money to these political groups who are supposed to be doing certain kinds of work and some, to some extent do that. But on the other hand, blunt, revolutionary political struggles because their purse strings are tied to the very people that oppress us. And so it's so important for us to kind of, on the one hand, go back to our roots in the sense, and that we need to be self-organized and self-funded rather than like, you know, counting on these banks and these other kind of NGOs that are tied to money that is tied to colonialism and imperialism. And on the other hand, continue to progress and learn about um, the ideas of identity and oppression and how capitalism oppresses people in these various different ways. So we're not just oppressed as, um, as, as, a black, as a black person on the one hand and as a woman on the other hand, these are actually happening at the same time. And also at the same time that we have more political struggles ab about those issues in an anti-capitalist framework. Um, and also, uh, I'm curious to hear more um, about the, 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 the general strikes that happened in Sudan. I'm wondering if majority women workplaces were involved, how those women workers were involved in those strikes. Um, uh, here are the class struggle in the United States is not as sharp in other, in other places, and, but that but people are also kind of looking at, well, we are oppressed as people, but we're also oppressed as a working class. Um, and the other point that I noticed that I thought was kind of an interesting parallel was, um, it's one thing to be against the United States, but that doesn't necessarily mean being pro-worker. It doesn't mean being supportive of oppressed people. So like in places like Syria, um, Assad is against the United States, has denounced Donald Trump. In Iran, they have denounced Donald Trump. Um, they've denounced U.S. imperialism, but at the same time, those regimes and authorities are anti-worker and oppress people and even execute our uh, socialists and communists and feminist comrades. And so our analysis in terms of um, who we're fighting, it's, well, of course, we're fighting white supremacy, but that doesn't mean that any person of color, Black person, or person that looks like us is our representative. Um, we're fighting patriarchy but it doesn't mean that any person who calls himself a feminist or attaches himself to that actually has the representation of the liberation of women in mind. Um, and so I think that, and just even in this conversation, though some of the similarities that were happening here in the United States as for myself, a person who lives 
and the worst, most murderous imperialist country in the history of the world, and at the same time is subjected to that oppression and is in a lot of ways outside of that society, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot that we can learn there and there's a lot that we can develop together. Um, I don't wanna like take up too much, I have a lot of things I wanna say, uh, but, but um, I didn't time myself, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's one thing is like noticing our commonalities and also developing strategies such as political organization, strikes, women's strikes, those are happening around the world that have happened. If, if we were able to develop those ideas and the idea of a strike against patriarchy and capitalism and imperialism with this perspective of, of developing politically together, I think that that's an incredibly positive way. And I think in people that live in imperialist countries such as the United States, we have a special importance because we have an ability, um, even though the consciousness isn't as high, we have the ability to take the finger, to break the finger from the trigger of US imperialism around the world. And so it's super important for people who live in imperialist countries um, for us to, to keep that in mind, um, that we can play that important role um, and also to learn from the lessons of people who are in these pointed struggles, like in Algeria, like in Sudan. Thank you, Julia. Lara, would you tell us what can Sudanese, Algerian, Syrian, Iranian, and African-American women learn from each other's history and experiences? Yes, absolutely. And thank you, Fatih. And thank you all to my fellow panelists. It's been wonderful. Um, I think we can learn a lot from each other's experiences. I think we have to. Overthrowing dictatorships is a dramatic undertaking and there are some issues that remain unaccounted for. So hopefully each step will serve as a learning experience. In the case of Syria, I would say um, within reference to the uprising that concrete demands for women and minority rights have to be clearly instated and included from the beginning. These demands are central to the revolution and they cannot be sidelined or come as an afterthought uh, to demands of democracy and freedom. I say this because even within progressive initiatives in Syria, the representation of women and minorities was often and unjustly minimized. Even though women were really at the forefront, they were challenging authoritarianism, religious extremism, and conservat uh, conservative attitudes all at once. Women in Idlib, for example, were not inclu included in progressive political affairs. So what they did is they organized themselves and they established an empowerment office, which had a specific uh, emphasis on increasing visibility and involvement in public and political affairs. There is this also this, uh, this little example. At some point, uh, Al-Nusta prohibited women. They didn't allow female presenters from broadcasting on air radio. So what the women did in retaliation was to broadcast animal noises. <laughs> so there's a, there's a clearly defiant attitude here. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk just slightly about the experience or the formation of local councils. 
Now, the idea of a local council is very progressive in essence. And to have it implemented to some degree in Syria is a strive, considering just how totalitarian the state is. So during the early stages of the revolution, these local assemblies worked to provide an alternative. As the sovereignty of the state decreased in some areas, these local councils filled in the need for um, managing, managing public services like uh, medical needs, uh, civil defense, childcare, relief, and, and so on. Now, as a premise, this horizontal form of self-governing is a direct way to counter uh, top-down hierarchy. But as many reports suggest that in Syria, women and minorities were still excluded from these assemblies, from these positions and the negotiations. And we need to ask ourselves why. I think war gives us a chance to, to put these patriarchal uh, norms to questioning. Um, personally, I think what we can learn is that there are many brave, strong and competent women in Syria, Iran, Algeria and Sudan. And of course, uh, in Syria, um, names like Rezan Zaytuna, Meiskaf, Fadwa Sleiman, they all come to, to mind. But I'm also talking about uh, the female students, uh, women who turned rooms into makeshift clinics and schools, women in shelters, women who, who in all of this chaos continued uh, life. Um, in, the, in the last stream on the Alliance, Yasser Munif was suggesting to change the, the dominant narrative when it comes to refugees. The, the one that paints them as vulnerable victims and instead we should recognize their power. And I would say the same goes for women. We need to recognize them as actors with agency. In revolutionary politics, women play an important role from fighting, demonstrating, um, documenting war crimes and uh, providing uh, humanitarian relief. And I think this is what we can learn and this is what we need to take into our future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. Um, Frida, uh, I would like to ask you the same question. What can Sudanese, Algerian, Syrian, Iranian, and African American women learn from each other's history and experiences? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so thank you, Fatih, and all the panelists. I will begin with the Sudanese and Algerian uprisings. Um, I'll try to say a little about each of the struggles that you mentioned. Um, I really appreciated Sarah singling out the opposition to sexual abuse and rape as very significant in the Sudanese uprising. And um, uh, in addition, I, 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 what, some of the elements that have been very significant to me in both uprisings have been uh, the, the, the dual opposition to both religious fundamentalism and the military regimes. Uh, there's no 
there are no illusions about a secular military regime bringing women any rights. Uh, there uh, has been opposition to, uh, to uh, imperialist powers, various imperialist powers, uh, which are all on the side of the Sudanese regime. So there, again, there's no illusion about any imperialist powers coming to their rescue. Uh, it's inspiring in, uh, to see that in Sudan, women who've been in the forefront of the struggle have opposed both their government's intervention uh, or participation in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, and also oppose uh, the, uh, the war inside the country against uh, 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 minority populations, against uh, the, the genocide in Darfur, and um, that, that's been extremely, extremely important. Um, in both the Sudanese and the Algerian uprisings, the, uh, we've had nurses, teachers, and other sectors of less skilled workers, as well as rural, rural workers involved. And as Selma also pointed out that the division between the, the, the uh, forward-looking uh, city women and backward rural women, that, that has been challenged. And uh, we can also learn from the experiences of an earlier generation of Algerian women, as uh, Selma discussed, who were involved the war, in the war of independence against French colonialism, but continued to be oppressed by patriarchal relations imposed by the new anti-colonial regime. So there's so many, so much more to be said about both uprisings, but I'll have to limit myself to that for now. Now, concerning what we can learn from the tragedy of the Syrian revolution, I think first and foremost, it's that the rural ru rulers will always use racism, sexism, religious and ethnic differences to divide our struggles. In the case of Syria, um, both Arab and Kurdish women were very involved in the 2011 Syrian uprising uh, against Bashar al-Assad, as Lara mentioned. However, as the Arab leadership of the opposition sided with the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and ignored the demands of the Kurdish revolutionaries for self-determination, the Kurdish PYD leadership also entered a non-aggression pact with the Assad regime and the Assad regime was able to concentrate on crushing the opposition in the rest of the country. Um, the, the courage and the resistance of Kurdish women fighting ISIS and Turkey's, in, uh, Turkey's invasion of Northern Syria are extremely important, extremely impressive. Um, the, uh, it has to be noted that the Kurdish Party of Democratic Union or PYD has had some achievements when it comes to secularism and women's rights but it's not a model for women's emancipation either. The PYD sees women's role as martyrs for the party and the nation. And uh, women are encouraged to be fighters, uh, but when it comes to actually discussing uh, transforming man-woman relations and divorce and um, LGBT questions and a question of sexuality, um, uh, they, uh, they, there, there is not much room for that. So um, that's some of what I want to say about Syria. And again, there's much more to be said about that. Um, concerning lessons that we can learn from African-American women's history and experiences, 
I want to say, uh, refer to the statement of the Combahee River Collective written in 1977 by Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, and Denita Fraser. It's important to note that what they meant by, quote, identity politics, unquote, or, or what they called focusing upon our own oppression was not the exclusion of other struggles, Rather, it was about refusing to subsume the struggle against racism, sexism, heterosexism, and class oppression in the name of unity. That's why they argued that, and this is a direct quote from the Kumbahi River Collective, if Black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression, unquote. Audrey Lord also gives us some profound lessons in her um, article, The Master's Tool Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. She writes, quote, interdependency between women is the way to a freedom which allows the I to be not in order to be used, but in order to be creative. This is a difference between the passive be and the active being. It's the end of the quote from Audrey Lord. In this passage, I see her offering a concept of the relationship of self to other that is not about domination or using the other person as a mere means for our self-interest, but helping the growth of the other person as, as ends in themselves. I find this to be a tremendous challenge to capitalism, racism, and sexist dehumanization. And now on to what we can learn from Iranian women's struggles. In 1979, women were the first group to protest en masse against Khomeini and his soon to be Islamic Republic. Women had been in the forefront of the revolution that overthrew the repressive monarchical regime of the Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi in February, 1979. On March 8th, International Women's Day, tens of thousands of women came out into the streets of Tehran and other cities. They protested against Ayatollah Khomeini's order to make the hijab compulsory and abolish women's limited rights. They chanted, we didn't make the revolution to go backward. Unfortunately, the majority of socialist organizations refused to support them and saw women's demands as a diversion from opposition to US imperialism. Had women's protests received the support that they deserved, the revolution might have gone in a different, in a progressive direction. Instead, it transformed into its opposite and became a counter-revolution in the name of opposition to US imperialism. We can also learn from Iranian women's resilience. Despite 40 years of the Islamic Republic, its full imposition of Sharia law, sex segregation, and even stoning, women have continued to resist. They now form 60% of university students and express themselves in the form of novels, blogs, websites, group discussions, and translations, of course, constantly battling against censorship and arrests. Since December 27, 2017, dozens of women have taken off their scarves in public places and have been arrested or temporarily released after posting heavy bails. These brave women who believe that wearing the hijab should be a matter of individual choice without any imposition from above, reflect the wishes of a majority of the Iranian public, according to the Iranian regime's own polls. 
women have also been involved in a wave of popular protests that began in December 2017 against the Islamic Republic and its military interventions in the region. Women have been involved in labor protests, student protests, and the protests of oppressed national minorities, such as Kurds and Arabs. Various Iranian feminists are also currently in prison and need our support. I will say more about the uh, uh, women political prisoners when we get to the uh, last question about international solidarity. Thank you so much, Frida. Now, the next question, um, Sarah, you would be the first. Uh, the question is uh, what socialist feminist uh, concept uh, can help us deepen and expand our uh, struggles? Um, I think for me, it's, an, it's, a, it's a by definition an intersectional stance. And that's very important because socialist feminism at its roots is looking at the intersection of patriarchy and capitalism. And I think in many struggles, we take that further and look at the intersections of, of gender oppression, of sexual oppression, of, of, of racist oppression as well. And so I will give an example from something that was mentioned earlier. Um, uh, often when Tunisia is spoken about, uh, it is it's, it's a country that I had the privilege to, to, to live in um, after the, the, the revolution of 2010, 2011, and to really closely, um, you know, have a, a watch the kind of uh, debates and struggles that have happened in the feminist sphere, sphere there um, in the in post-revolution. And um, I think, you know, it, it's on the one hand, Tunisia is, uh, the feminist uh, struggle is very powerful there. Part of it, of course, is, comes from a history of what you would call, what we would call the, the Bourguibist kind of state-led feminist uh, stance, which is highly problematic in many ways. But of course, um, in the legal sphere has had some impact, for example, in um, changing the personal status laws where they are one of the most progressive in the country. Of course, I don't put that down to the state alone. Um, it's also down to women's struggles, but the state ad adopted that position. Um, and so you see that in the legal sphere, at least in the North African and, and, and Middle Eastern regions, it is a highly advanced and in, in some ways more advanced than, than, than many countries that you know, the Tunisian elite looks up to like France, you know. Um, at the same time, you know, if you're watching closely over the last uh, few months, there has been a kind of low level debate about the death that happened to rural women in Tunisia. Essentially, this uh, came about after a another pickup truck that has uh, rural women workers that were going to work, that work by the day, that get taken to work in farms, that overturned and they were killed. And this is a regular occurrence in rural Tunisia, right? And so you see that when it comes to the material conditions of these women, the, the, the realities of the exploitation of their labor and the conditions in which they work, their lives are still incredibly oppressive and, and very much marked by structural violence. And so for me, keeping this lens of the intersection between 
the dehumanization and the structural violence of capitalism with the dehumanization and the structural violence of patriarchy. In, in the case of my country, add to it the issue of race and the issue of ethnicity, whereby we have an ethnic hierarchy that is maintained and defended even by people who espouse, for example, a Marxist position in some cases, right, in terms of practices. Um, or in the US, I'm, I'm Sudanese American, so in the US um, context as well. Um, for me, it's, it's this lens that makes um, socialist feminism uh, different from any other brand of feminism because it, because it is both wide enough to see how these different struggles are interconnected, but also narrow enough to be able to point to the actual material conditions in which women's lives uh, that shape women's lives in particular contexts. So um, that is something that I wanted to say. The other thing is just some, to something that Julia said, it's a really interesting question that she asked about, you know, women's role in these strikes. I think it's incredibly important that to point out that one of the things in which this regime has done is dismantle the unions. Um, I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that you know, I subscribe to this label of socialist feminist, but I think we also need, need new concepts to deal with the realities in which we face. For example, um, the traditional understanding of a proletariat in Sudan is much more complicated because um, it is not an industrialized country. The industries that were there were largely dismantled, partly because the regime wanted to break the powers of the unions and to set up parallel unions that it could, could, could control. And the unions have tended to be, the workers' unions have tended to be the kind of um, stronghold of the Communist Party. And one way in which to break the power of the Communist Party and to break the power of the left uh, and to break the power of the abilities of these unions to be independent and to organize was partly by dismantling the industries themselves, the textile factories, um, the, the factories around the Jazeera scheme, one of the biggest irrigate, the biggest irrigation, colonial irrigation project uh, on the, in the world, I think, uh, at, at least on the African continent. Um, which produced cotton for cash crops. That was the, one of the main sources of income for the state. And privatizing, dismantling the scheme, for example, dismantling the factories that produced um, oil around it, that produced textile, textiles around it, is, was a way of breaking down um, the ability of workers to organize by breaking down their livelihood as workers themselves, the mechanization of the port in Port Sudan and so forth. And so a lot of women, um, both women who had not previously worked, but because of the deteriorating economic conditions were pushed into the labor market, but also women who had had more secure sources of labor who then got pushed into the informal market. So while the strikes are quite successful, what we haven't really um, addressed is what do you do when the majority of women are in the informal market? As is the case in many African countries and in many other countries in the world. It is a question that I think as socialists and as socialist feminists, we still haven't grappled with as much as we should grapple with, right? Because it potentially means that a lot of the intersections of their oppressions are invisible but also the means, the traditional means we have of struggling are, are, are not available to us, right? 
And at the same time, we may not be recognizing their ways of struggle that are not in our books, right? That are not in our playbooks that we know of and are not really supporting them in the way that we should support them. And there are attempts in Sudan by, for example, informal women who work in the informal uh, sector, mainly selling food and, uh, and drinks. One very successful one I mentioned earlier is the it's, it's, it's a union of uh, tea, tea sellers. Uh, it's interesting because a lot of these tea sellers, you know, many of, some of them were, were worked in factories, others were teachers, um, some of them worked in agricultural spheres and with the wars, with the destruction of their rural livelihoods were pushed into urban centers, working in the margins, trying to make a living for themselves. Many of the women who are in jails, I and mean, one of the questions that I've always been raising, and I think this is something that socialist feminism allows me to see that it sometimes isn't possible for mainstream feminists to see is, you know, there's a lot of focus on political prisoners, right? And political prisoners, of course, need our support. But the majority of women prisoners in Sudan are women who are imprisoned for what I call economic crimes, meaning mm -hmm. there are women, for example, who are brewing alcohol, very poor women who tend to be from uh, groups, uh, ethnic groups that are othered within mainstream society, who are imprisoned in large numbers, often with their children, giving birth in prisons, right, for selling alcohol, for brewing alcohol as one of the few ways that they are able to subscribe. And they're caught in these cycles of poverty because they are unable to pay the fines. And they are not given the same status. Uh, they are not given the same attention. They are not supported in the same way as the more high profile um, political prisoners who are arrested at a protest, for example, right? And so one of the ways in which I see the, the, the concepts of socialist feminism allows us to do is to break down these kind of binaries and these kind of hierarchies, right? And to make the invisible visible. But I still would maintain that we, are, we also need to pressure ourselves to, we are living in, in, a, in a time that requires our own thinking and our own concepts to evolve and to, to, to meet the reality in a better way. And this is something that we really uh, need to do because I think on the right, you see this learning and this the, the sort of evolution in the ways that they organize much further ahead than ours. And we need to really, um, we need to do that and, and we need to revisit our concepts and we need to recognize the agencies that do not fit into our own frameworks. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, Selma, I would like to ask the same question, uh, what socialist feminist concept can um, help us deepen and expand our struggle? Well, uh, I would like first to acknowledge two things. First, that um, uh, Sarah's intervention has been very sharp into explaining the relationship between feminists, uh, feminism and class and women's. Uh, women's role within it. I, I, I would like to insist on the fact that she's, uh, she, she said one of the most important things, uh, the relationship to, especially the, relation, the question of, uh, of women prisoners is so, so important the way we look at it. It's not, so the whole issue of also of feminism is um, identifying women's, uh, women's activity and not and not separating their activity from the official self-appointed uh, feminists. I think that, that that is a very important matter, but I, 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 I won't come back to that because you, you, you said something that is 
also rings a bell also to Algeria, rings a bell to Egypt. Uh, Egypt, you have the same problems with women facing debts that they, com that they can pay. Uh, well, one of the elements maybe that is, uh, in my view, because I'm based in Paris, so we had lots of debates around the question of Islamophobia, etc. And when I see the situation of the of so-called of the feminist movements in Algeria, uh, it seems like some some some. In my opinion, from here, is that some steps has to be made from these movements to be very more open on the relationship to. Uh, religious interpretation. So uh, one of the, the elements that, 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 that is very important to unite uh, different, uh, I would say, women, that some people are believers, some are non-believers, some are neutral towards uh, believing or whatever. And, and it seems to me that, that to, to, to go against uh, the contradiction that has been put on that you can't be a feminist and you can't be a Muslim, it is very important also to set a place for, uh, for women who are also, who, who think themselves as Muslims and feminists. And I think in Morocco, it's pretty much uh, that this point of view is very much advanced, that in France, there's been lots of fightings around uh, the veiled women's place within feminist movement. And I think they are winning within the feminist movement, not towards the state because it's another, it's another issue in France, but they, they want so many things and they open up also among uh, young Muslims in here uh, the possibility to 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 reread Islam into a feminist uh, framework. So I'm sure um, this is something that exists in the women's mind or in the Muslim women's minds in Algeria. But the question is that to to what extent it is uh, theoretically uh, asserted? Because still we are. Uh, left uh, in a situation in which you have uh, the importance of social justice, which is very good, the question of access to work, but uh, you also have the question of what I said, fighting against sexist laws. But at the same time, uh, what is also the, the I would say, the, the theoretical drive that that is linked with the fact that the majority of the people identify themselves as Muslim and as well are fighting for women's equal rights. So it means like challenging um, the state view uh, that is very backwarded uh, over what Islam is. Islam can only be uh, what people have decided it to be. So what also women's rights has to be what Muslim women has decided what is it going to be and I think it helped us to not only to to, to really uh, tear uh, the family law apart because the family the family code was stated under a view on Islam so it's important at the same time when you fight against it you fight against uh, those uh, those view of Islam the other element uh, that could also deepen the the, the, the feminist movement it's been I think it's been it's been said already. Um, oh, just to finish with Islamic feminism, I would like to say also that Iran is very, very, very important on that matter. And the work of Iranian feminists with a newspaper called Zanan, I think, is has played a very important role and has very helped 
to, to break from this view of Islam on one side and feminism on the other side. Uh, so Iran is very important and Iran is often used as uh, the bad image actually, or the, the has been instrumentalized against brave women to say, look, what's happening in Iran, it's catastrophic, etc. It's not that catastrophic. I, I actually can learn from, from Islamic feminism from Iran. So the other point is the relationship to nature. Uh, what, what do I mean by that is that the, 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 the question of gender identity has to be more and more deepened and also linked with our own history because we, before colonization, actually, uh, I know that was the case of Egypt, and I'm sure it's the case of so many, so many, so many countries when capitalism was imported from 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 Europe in our countries. Uh, there has been a, I would say, a, the, the the gender role has been more and more rigid, which was not the case at the time. And the gender identities has been more and more rigid. Like you, your sex is women, so you have to be a woman doing this, this, that. You're a man, so you're supposed to be that, that, that. And that was the foundation of the modern societies in which we are, which are also inheriting from this very binary fixed view. And so to, 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 to be able also to link up feminist movement within more LGBT issues, it is, uh, in my view, important to re-question uh, our history and our relationship to, to gender that is much more, much more uh, sophisticated. Uh, just to, to, to take the example of uh, Western Algeria and Morocco, you have, like, you have also the tradition of uh, women singers and sometimes also men are dressed as women with the hat and uh, you know, go from a city to another and start to sing. So you have this kind of several identities existing in Western Algeria and Morocco as well. I can say that question of um, of uh, you know male behavior is uh, is very interesting because it doesn't fit at all to the universal masculine values and uh, and interrogating those. Uh, those uh, general attitudes uh, that are linked with uh, gender identity, with, with sexual identities that are much more wider or can't be reduced to that sexual identity is, uh, is also a way to, 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 to renew our relationship to, to our history. And, and I would like to certify that this is not just a bourgeois important view. It is, it is, it, these are all practices that has always been existed that are changing through times that have been influenced, but they are there and they are very, and this kind of culture is very much uh, rooted within uh, within working class people in general. Well, I can't go into further details, but mm -hmm. it's a very important, it's a very important matter for me to say that we also have all kinds of gender identities that, that doesn't fit the occidental or Oh, not occidental, but modern capitalist values. Thank you so much, Selma. Julia, um, what uh, socialist feminist concepts can help us deepen and expand our struggle? And so a lot of the things that um, people have said, I, I agree with. I think that a perspective of socialist feminism versus bourgeois feminism has been to empower the working class and to fight capitalism and imperialism. Um, our perspectives 
and demands are not to just become another or have a female face on imperialism and colonialism and racism, but really to dismantle those systems. And um, when Frida referenced the Kombahi River Collective, those perspectives were of those um, black lesbian militants who were fighting for exactly that, who had already been part of the black struggle and found that the discussions of the liberation of women were not sufficiently addressed, um, even though they were discussed um, and everyone you know, denounced sexism and patriarchy within the own, their own practices, it was a problem. And the same with the traditional feminist movement being in the United States, majority white, and a lot of it being bourgeois and refusing to address those issues. And so when that group of people and, and had, who have influenced the, the militants and organizations now, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement and the fights against police brutality have said, no, we're, we need to talk about all the ways in which we're oppressed by capitalism, which includes patriarchy, it includes colonialism, and includes imperialism. And I think that socialist feminism and the fight for women's liberation can really be an answer to that because it seeks to address it. It seeks to address the issues of capitalism and the ways in which we're oppressed. And the other points that uh, folks have made that Selma made just now was, uh, or I, I think is part of what is considered traditional and historical is really connected to Eurocentrism so Eurocentrism is the family needs to be straight, there's very rigid gender roles, but what they try to do is actually erase the history that existed before colonialism of fluid, of fluid gender roles, of different perspectives of how masculinity and femininity are played out in society, including um, in Tunisia and including in United States where we have folks that are two-spirited and other perspectives of indigenous folks that defy the colonialist idea of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And I also think too, um, I think in, in, in a lot of ways around the world, there has been this lull that has now been awakened. So I think of Egypt, for example, they lived under dictatorship for 30 years and other places for 30 years um, we're hearing this is the biggest struggle in 30 years, the biggest struggle in 20 years around the world. And those folks are now waking up. And so those perspectives and views are being shaken as well. And so some of the contradictions that we are noticing are being challenged. Um, for example, patriarchy within Marxist political organizations, the lack of, of political analysis about patriarchy. So often patriarchy and sexism are framed in this moralistic view. So it's, not, it's, it's a good thing to be nice to women or it's a good thing to not treat women poorly rather than this is a political perspective of patriarchy because in order for us to be liberated, that means that women not, need to not be oppressed. So the ties to the fight for women's liberation is not a moral charity but a political necessity that's based on eliminating or overthrowing imperialism and capitalism. Um, the only, the difference though, is that those are contradictions within leftist perspectives uh, versus fascism, which depends on patriarchy. Right-wing ideology has to have patriarchy. That's why they always have money. 
because that's part of the society and why we don't have any money um because it's part of it's part of their it's part of maintaining this society is patriarchy um is having these divisions and creating them and st and stoking them and maintaining them and getting people who are in privileged positions to defend them so getting men to defend patriarchy getting white people to defend or tether themselves to billionaire bigots who make more money than them and seeing themselves more aligned with those billionaire white bigots than like Donald Trump than with the working class who is a different ethnicity but is in the same income bracket and has many of the same attacks. And so I think that that's part of that and I think that socialist feminism has had a history of revolutionary struggle because it has forced those questions to go from, to be part of the political and theoretical realm, but also to be actualized. So that, that's another thing. Um, let me see, the other point I wanted to also include was the movements that are happening in South Africa, um, because that's also challenging this notion that, you know, apartheid, at least formally um, has ended. However, economically apartheid is maintained and it's maintained with the, uh, cooperation and the complicity of the ANC. Um, and that women have been part of these fights, for example, with NUMSA um, in South Africa to be developing a fight for trade union politics and, and women's working class politics. And so those things are getting challenged and these ideas are getting challenged. Um, and as, as someone said, I don't want to just repeat what people are saying, but we need to be having these political debates and discussions um, continually because they affect each other. You know, I, I think that someone being in a country or having experience in country counts for a lot, but at the same time, um, we need to kind of be discussing with each other and challenging each other about these things that are happening. Like, for example, Kamala Harris, I mentioned her, she's a Democratic, you know, nominee. She may get larger, in which case many of us will be asked to support her, even though she is, you know, an architect for mass incarceration. And we as black women in particular will be said, well, don't you support black women? Don't you support uh, black women? So why aren't you supporting her? And so we'll need to also strengthen ourselves and each other in terms of really making clear those, those demands. Um, and how, you know, uh, what do they say it? Um, skin, uh, skin folk ain't kin folk. Some people who are who look like us don't necessarily represent us or don't represent us or all, in fact, are our class enemies. So that's another part that socialist feminism um, has to play. Thank you, Julia. Uh, Lara, would you tell us what socialist feminist concepts can help us deepen and expand our struggles? Okay, deepen and expand our struggles. Okay, so when we talk about uh, socialist feminist theory, we are talking about an all-encompassing conjuncture of issues. Um, it's not just male domination over women and the stratification of social class, but includes race, homophobia, ableism, and recognizing how they function as systems of oppression as opposed to attitudes. And it's these characteristics of being socialist 
internationalist, anti-racist, anti-heterosexist that makes it valuable and relevant today. Um, as for a concept, there are two, two that come to mind. Um, first, I would say it is, uh, it is recognizing the ubiquitous nature of violence or in more specific, gender-based violence. How violence is utilized against women, against members of the black community, um, the LGBT community. In fact, um, there was a report that came out just last week that stated uh, 12 trans people have been killed in these past few months and they were all black women. This is an example of a systematic targeting. They were targeted because they were women, because they were black and because they were trans. Um, I mean, violence at large is a part of the power equation. Oppression is a result of, or it's a formula which includes power and prejudice and the use of violence to sustain that domination. So in a patriarchal society, sexual violence in the form of rape and assault is weaponized against women. You know, like, like what was said before, you know, we are reading jarring reports of these crimes committed against uh, Sudanese women, uh, Syrian women, Saudi Arabian women, uh, women all over. Right now, um, I think I would say that we are fortunate to be in the Me Too era, which to me is uh, doing two things. First, it's, it's making us realize how universal sexual assault is. And because of that universality, uh, we're able to connect and intersect globally. The second concept has to do, do more with economy. So when we try to envision or enact this alternative system to capitalism or the system that we're trying to transition into post-capitalism, um, I think we have to take into account that the exploitation ex experienced under labor includes the sexual division of labor and women's unpaid reproductive work. Just like violence, this results in their universal subordination. It restricted them to their private space and also restricted them from resource. Uh, this is a concept that's wonderfully expanded by uh, Silvia Federici, who talks about the restructuring of reproduction in a global economy, taking into account unpaid domestic labor of a capitalist system. She says reproduction of labor power includes a far broader range than just the consumption of commodities. And I think this is a socialist feminist concept which can be applied globally. And I think it would greatly, greatly um, restructure gender inequality. Thank you so much, Lara. Uh, Frida, um, please uh, tell us what socialist feminist concepts can help us deepen and expand our struggles. Thank you. First, I think uh, we're very fortunate as socialist feminists today because we have such a rich body of concepts and theories that we can draw on 
ranging from social reproduction theory to alienation and from intersectionality to queer theory. We have many feminist philosophers. We also have socialist feminists theorizing alternatives to capitalism. So I see social reproduction theory, alienation, intersectionality, and queer theory all trying to figure out the very complex question of what accounts for women's particular oppression or gender oppression. Um, some socialist feminists have correctly argued that gender oppression cannot be reduced to exploitation or economic inequality or the private property of the means of production. That's been one of the most important achievements of socialist feminism. They, uh, some socialist feminists have criticized Friedrich Engels's origin of the family for being reductionist. reductionist. They, uh, some uh, socialist feminists who focus on the theory of intersectionality also correctly stress the interlocking uh, um, connection of racism, sexism, and class divisions that others have talked about. Um, to me, the question remains, how do we go beyond drawing the external connections between these forms of oppression? What are the internal connections? Um, one of the concepts in Marxist feminism that I find very illuminating in this respect is the relationship between alienated labor and alienation in human relations. Um, it's important to note that um, Marx's economic and philosophical manuscripts where he talks about alienated labor He's not just talking about alienation from the product of our labor, but from the process of our labor, from other human beings, and from our ability or human potentiality for free and conscious activity. And then he relates that to the man-woman relationship, and he says that um, men are so alienated that in relationship to women, they treat women as spoils and handmaiden of communal laws. And he says that men, because in relationship to women, they, they're also relating to their sexuality, their body, they can't hide their contradictions, the contradictions come out. And so when he says that the, the um, measure of how advanced the society is, is is uh, the uh, relationship to women, attitude toward women. Uh, the way I see that is, is that he's saying, um, if a society is really advanced, uh, another human being, the human being that you love, especially a claim that you love, wouldn't be just an object uh, for your mere pleasure or your needs, domestic labor, but would be uh, their growth, their development, their creativity would be an end in itself. So that, that is the measure of how advanced a society is, at least according, uh, would be at least according to, to Marx. So um, I think this concept of alienation is very profound because it takes us beyond the, the understanding of simply connect, trying to connect a, a exploitation to oppression in an external way. We see how they're connected from, from, from the very get-go, from, from the very capitalist mode of production or any, any mode of production that separates mind and body and fragments human beings, which capitalism does to the extreme. Fragments are, 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 are poten the potential for the integra integrality of mind and body. And uh, it, it also creates, uh, it's another very important issue is capitalism creates this impersonal form of domination in which even if you're not at the uh, point of uh, producing value, uh, value and surplus value, you still feel the effects of it because 
the, the issue of using humans as a mere means uh, uh, for your needs or for, your, for the, for the self-expansion of value, even in an indirect way, is, is, so, uh, is so involved in, in any, any relationship, family, society, uh, it's so oppressive and it's, uh, it's present everywhere. So I think that to go back to some of the questions that others raised, uh, first of all, I think this question of uh, taking the alienation perspective um, helps us see um, uh, that how, first, how capitalism itself uses this uh, alienation, this, um, or what the, uh, Max Weber and then the Frankfurt School call um, instrumental rationality or a ca very calculated relationship in, uh, between, uh, between humans. Well, capitalism uses that to then turn us against each other um, uh, and how authoritarian capitalism uses the alienation, especially that people feel now um, with the second machine age, with uh, globalization, uh, uh, especially in the US, a certain sector of working class um, feels, uh, feels uh, a, a, a real sense of disconnect um, the authoritarian cap or capitalist authoritarianism, capitalism, which, whose direction is, of course, authoritarianism, uses that to then uh, turn us against each other uh, to build on racism, sexism, and a sense of insecurity. Um, so that's one respect in, in which I think uh, social feminism and the concept of alienation can help us uh, respond to the existing um, very ominous reality. Uh, I think that it also helps, um, in response to Sarah's question, um, it helps us see that we can't, rural women, even if they don't, okay, rural women don't have the traditional kind of work in a traditional um, um, capitalist kind of work that uh, we, uh, we're used to, uh, but, uh, and they're in the informal labor market, but the question of uh, capitalism's, um, alienation and the, the separation of mind and body and the, the um, utilitarian use of humans, I think speaks very much to rural women too, um, whatever kind of work they do. Uh, it speaks to the Me Too movement, which is challenging the uh, sexual assault, sexual um, um, abuse um, in all spheres of life, whether it's personal, family or work. And, um, academia, um, and it speaks to Iranian women. <clears throat> I think uh, among Iranian women, <coughs> although Islamic feminism is one tendency in Iran, <clears throat> there is also a real strong uh, opposition among some women to religion because uh, uh, they, they identify religion with the oppression that they've experienced. And let's face it, um, religion has been a big part of the oppression that women have faced in Iran. We can't deny that. Uh, but of course, women have a right to practice their religion. And if they want to wear the hijab, that's their choice. But I think in Iran, um, one of the discourses has been to say that um, the, the real reason for women's oppression uh, within the, within the uh, progressives and, and uh, liberals. The real reason for women's oppression is only religion. And if we just didn't have a, a religious state, 
we would be fine that we, with a you know market capitalist or or any kind of or even a state capitalist state we uh, secular state that women would be free and of course the alienation perspective can help us see that that's not the case that religion is part of the oppression uh, but that's not there's there's much more to it and capitalism also uses religion for its own purposes so um for all those reasons, I think that uh, if we if we discuss further this perspective of alienation, it, uh, we can actually uh, make further inroads into into having a having a deeper sense of this intersectional approach of the connection between class, gender, and, and race oppression. Thank you so much, Freda. And this is uh, the last question from panel, but still uh, we're gonna, we have some questions from the audience too. Um, the question is, what does international socialist feminist solidarity mean? How can we promote it by connecting it, uh, connecting uh, our struggle? Uh, Sarah, would you answer please? I, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I think the first uh, way in which I would answer this question is to look at the issue of nationalism and borders. Um, it is imperative that we don't fall into the trap. I, I see this happening all the time. Um, of falling into the trap of not understanding that, particularly I'm right now, you know, in my country, we're at a revolutionary moment where you see that nationalism uh, can be a mobilizing force, right? Because for people, it's a way of them reasserting the fact that there is something higher than individual interest, which is the country's interest. And that can mobilize many people. But of course, it's always a double-edged sword. Uh, so double-edged sword because on the other hand, uh, it, it also creates others and it, it, it uh, excludes. Uh, I will give an example from our case. Um, the, part of this revolution, revolutionary currents have been a kind of standing up and facing the state's ingrained racist policies of creating ethnic and racial hierarchies. This is of course, you know, a building on the colonial state. It is also a way of dividing people. For example, early on in the revolution, they arrested some students from Darfur and uh, tried to convince people that, you know, all of this uh, kind of instability was coming from them. And so part of what the revolution has been trying, you know, part, the revolutionaries have been trying to do is to reject the politics of racism that are not just politics of the state, but we recognize them as deeply ingrained within our own societies. Um, at the same time, there are groups that are invisible. So I think when I think about international socialist feminist solidarity, I would personally start from home, meaning um, I think, for example, about South Sudanese women, um, a lot of the demands that have made it onto uh, this uh, Declaration for Freedom and Change in Sudan have to do with, have been coming out of the street, but have been delivered by elites, right? And um, 
you know, South Sudanese women um, who are very much part of the struggle here, who have been treated as second, third class citizens for generations um, after South Sudan gained its independence in 2011, um, many of them were faced with the choice of uh, having to, or, or not given the choice of retaining Sudanese nationality, that you're South Sudanese now, you voted for secession, you need to leave and go to your own country. And many of them either did not leave because you know they've been in the North for generations or have been born and, and, and raised in the North, or have gone back and, and, and were forced to come back as refugees in their own countries, because for me, Sudan is their country still. Um, they were forced to come back as refugees where they now have this uh, kind of very precarious legal position. So I would say that, you know, internally, we, we have to look at that. We have to look at the Eritrean and Ethiopian and other refugees in our own country, the women in our own country who are incredibly marginalized and victimized as well, but are not necessarily given voice in a revolution that very much fun for many understandable reasons is focusing on citizenship because many Sudanese people didn't have citizenship anyways, even if on paper they were citizens. Um, I would say just looking at it all from an international standpoint, one very important thing, and I think I've learned a lot actually watching the Iranian socialists with this, they're very, they've been very good at trying to get information out about the Sudanese revolution in Farsi um, to workers groups and to other groups in Iran. Like I'm really inspired by that. And I, I would like to to get better at doing that also in Sudan and to better connect through information, just simple answering simple questions about what's happening so that we are not using either state media, which in many of our countries, including the US is, you know, not trustworthy, or we're relying on mainstream media or for, you know, Western white saviors to interpret for us what is happening in those places. That's something that I've personally been, I've learned something, I would say. Um, I would say material support, you know, in Sudan, for example, there are um, many people who are working as all of this is unfolding in trying to reclaim the unions, to try to reclaim independent unions, to try to help build up workers' unions again, to try to basically build that as a power base so that we're not putting everything into the hands of politicians, regardless of whether we think they're better or or, or not, whether they're civilian or not. Um, that's uh, So material support across borders is, is incredibly important where there is an opportunity to do that. Uh, I would say sharing experiences is, is very critical. Um, there are things that people have gone through in other countries that we are facing now, and some of us are facing them as if this has never happened anywhere before. Like it's as if it's the first time on earth that this happens, and that is just not true. There have been people that have faced these things, these questions, and have struggled with them. And we need to be able to um, share these type of experiences. And I would say showing up, just showing up, is such a small thing, but just showing up for each other's protests, to each other's events, showing up when the spotlight is no longer there. I mean, if you look at Sudan, for example, some years back, there was a Save Darfur movement and highly problematic movement that on the one hand recognized that there was a genocide happening in the country, but on the other hand was very much framing it in simplistic Islamophobic uh, terms. And that then eventually after all the, you know, kids bought their bracelets and whatever happened and George Clooney went there and got on television, it disappeared off the media as if the war had ended, as if the ethnic cleansing had ended and it had not, it continues to this day. 
And so one thing that we can do, um, because this is important in our politics, is to not let ourselves be driven by what is visible or what is made invisible within mainstream media. So to, to have our own channels of, of continuing to follow and support each other. And, and I will leave it at that. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Selma, um, what does international socialist feminist solidarity mean to you and how can we promote it by con connecting our struggles? Okay, so for me, it's the basis um, because we need all the, those movements happening are also inspiring our own activity in our country. Uh, as I said before, I'm not in Algeria, but I'm based in France. However, uh, the existing Sudanese movement, as well as the existing Algerian movement, is so, so important to import uh, I would say the lessons and the values uh, here. And it, it's the, for me, it's the first step to make uh, to show that we can learn from there. We, I say that because France is an imperialist, colonialist country, and you have this, I would say, uh, vision that women's rights here are much more advanced and so feminist view. Uh, their solidarity as oh we come we come to save you like this uh, saviorist view that is been problematic for years, which is linked also with the absence of uh, clarity over racism and colonialism as well. So the first thing to do here is to how can we learn and translate uh, women's activity here? I'm just giving like simple example. Uh, I think it was two years ago, uh, women uh, in Algeria staged a protest on the beach for the right to access uh, the beach. And so French media echoed it in a very paternalistic way, saying that uh, women are, you know, playing on the opposition that uh, non-vaid women want to wear, they are fighting for bikinis, for going to the beach wearing bikinis. And actually, that was not the only, the only thing that's been put forward by the women. It was a wide range of women, vaid women, unvaid women, wearing bikinis, wearing burkinis, whatever. They just wanted the access to the beach for all the women. Why is it why was it viewed in such a narrow way? It's because here, uh, like two years ago, I think also, uh, you had um, local mayors trying to ban red women from accessing to the beach wearing bikinis. And uh, for them, fighting for women's rights means that women has to be half naked on the beach. And if it's not the case, then we have to forbid her the entrance of going to the beach. So we had like those terrible view, terrible images of uh, veiled women being harassed by the police or forced to remove their veils on the beach, which is very, very, very upsetting. And so, and, and, and so, and so there was a complete absence, I would say of clear position uh, within the feminist movement in support of these women. 
I would say. Uh, very, very few uh, leftist groups have standed against uh, the organization in which I mean the new anti-capitalist party. We staged a demonstration for women's right to access to the beach, but it was after a long fight within my organization just to get that demonstration, just to give you the idea that uh, how can you connect internationally to, uh, to, to women when you don't accept them the way they are? So maybe the, the first step that is very simple is that if you, if you want to be able to, 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 to be concretely in solidarity with these women, then you have to accept the women as they, as, as they are. And I would say like from where I am, it is one of the most challenging things that we are facing. Uh, you have uh, civil group campaigners who are trying to fight against uh, the, um, the access uh, access to swimming pools are are not allowed for women wearing bikinis, while a bikini is also a swimsuit that allows in swimming pools in general. So this kind of thing, like the question of access in uh, in the public space, that French people think like. Okay, women and men have equal rights, equal access to public spaces. There is no problem. The problem comes from uh, the black countries in general, Asian countries in general, who watch that they see us uh, as back as backward. Actually, no, it's not the case. It, it's not. It, it's not as simple as that. So, if we acknowledge that our issues are not that different from the issues that exist abroad, and the fact that there are movements, uh, revolutionary movement happenings, means that we have to 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 learn from there. So concretely, for me, uh, the the first thing that could help us to have better equal relationships with feminist movements uh, internationally is acknowledging that. The other element is that also countries uh, like Latin America has witnessed massive strikes, massive women's movement. And we have still lots, lots of things to learn and see how we can translate those inspiring movements into practice here in France. Uh, I just insist on that matter. Like, I would even say that women's, uh, women's positions and women's rights in France are much more uh, under, under attack than other European countries for racist matches, but also for the way that women are women are treated in politics in general well it's a, it's a, it's a big it's a big issue but you have this way of showing how civilized uh france is, is but in terms of uh general behavior rape culture etc there is lots of to be done and lots of also to learn from from other countries thank you so much Salma. Uh, Julia, uh, what does international socialist feminist solidarity mean to you? How can we promote it by connecting our struggles? I think, um, as I said before, capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, patriarchy, and white supremacy, these are all international phenomenons. And especially with the growth of the right wing, um, throughout the world. So in countries, this is happening all over the world. We need to also develop international strategies together. Um, and I'm glad Latin America was mentioned. Um, so the, the group I work with 
left voice. That's the U.S. part of an international um, socialist revolutionary press. So we write in five different languages and um, in 11 different countries. And so part of what we try, we're trying to do is exactly that, is to kind of build up more of a common experience and ability for other revolutionaries in other countries to discuss with each other. Um, and particularly in Argentina with our biggest group, um, they were part of, they're called Pani Rosas, and they were part of organizing the women's strike uh, for abortion rights. And so we can look our, around the world and see that's happening um, all throughout different countries. And uh, I also wanted to, to mention, I mean, in the United States with black women's struggles, you know, our very, the, the changes in gentrification have also led to increased racial attacks. Um, just walking down the street, just existing has prompted other people who had moved out of our neighborhoods and now are moving back into them um, to lead to attacking us, calling the police on us, um, saying we're stealing when we're just kind of just existing. Um, there's also been other laws that you would think you wouldn't have to have passed that have passed, like in California, wearing your hair, natural hair is protected now. So hair that's grown out of people's heads since they were kidnapped from Africa and brought to the United States is now legal. Um, and so the fact that that's happened in 2019 also speaks to the racism that's integrated into our total society. Um, and I think that we have an ability to communicate with each other and learn from each other's experiences. In Los Angeles, where I live very close to the US-Mexico border, uh, I was able to organize a protest um, in front of the Mexican consulate to denounce US imperialism and Mexico's uh, government's complicity in attacking immigrants who are trying to cross the border. And throughout other countries, um, African countries going to Europe, in different places, even within Africa. So like Zimbabweans going to South Africa, there's been people who are having to move because of colonialism and imperialism to other countries and being faced, being met with bigotry and xenophobia. And so it's important for us to recognize those things that are happening and recognize that imperialism and capitalism are playing that role. And internally, patriarchy, um, is also helping to, to blunt or stunt those movements, especially by people who claim to be part of them. Uh, so we really have an opportunity now, we have to take it while we can, that we have, that we can communicate with each other um, without harass, without outright harassment from the government, that we can have this conversation right now, and many of us are in different countries, to really be able to build solidarity, understand each other's movements, and to challenge each other and learn from each other. So a lot of the same things people are mentioning here, many of those things are happening in the United States. Many of those things are happening to black women in the United States, uh, sexual assaults for a lot of police brutality victims that are black women have been assaulted um, because it doesn't leave scars. You can't see that happening. Um, they've been doing that. People like um, a lot of black women have been in jail, died in jail, called, said it was suicide um, when they were killed by law enforcement or just attacked. And it's because Black women have played such a militant role in the recent movements and other movements in the past. Um, so, so I think there's a possibility for that. And I'll, and, and, and it's for us on this, on this 
discussion and for many other people to really try to build for that. So. Thank you so much, uh, Julia. Lara, what does International Socialist Feminist Solidarity mean to you? How can we promote it by connecting our struggles? Um, okay. So the way we organize against the state capitalist system should serve an as an example of how we can lead equal and just lives. That's what David Graeber implied about the Wall Street movement. But the problem is that time after time, these initiatives are, they're getting fragmented and they're falling, falling apart after an inevitable attack by state agents. So what is there to do? In my opinion, and this has been stated uh, many times by my fellow comrades and colleagues, we need an international form of solidarity. And like what Julia said, this is a very opportune moment. We have the option to use technology, just as we're doing now, to consolidate these various struggles. Um, you know, we're talking about the Me Too movement, fighting rape culture, fighting inhumane immigration policies, fighting authoritarianism and the rise of the far right in many areas of the world. Um, demanding economic sustainability for, for human lives and the planet itself. And the dissent is palpable. We're having protests in Sudan and Puerto Rico and Hong Kong. There's the anti-capitalist feminist movement in Argentina and Chile. There's the protests in France. And I think this is what the moment is calling for. Uh, what I think should happen next is to have more coordinated protests for our movements to become more coordinated and to make it clear what our demands are. Um, just very recently, there was a strike in Lebanon and LA standing for migrant workers and workers from Palestine and Syria. Uh, there is also a protest in Berlin earlier this, this week where trans and queer allies stood for Palestinian rights. So we can see there's already this, this momentum, this crossover and emergence of movements. And I think this is the direction we should be heading into. Um, finally, I just wanna say that this alternative that we're talking about, this uh, system that is built on mutual cooperation and fairness, it is something we need to include in the grander scheme of things for sure, but also in our daily lives, in our domestic homes and labor and the way we deal with others. I'm just going to end it by reading a quote from Marie Bookshin, um, who said that we should look into and pass the struggles of class-based economic exploitation. We should challenge forms of hierarchical mechanisms in all of its facets starting with the states, families, schools, sexual relations, and among ethnic groups. Thank you so much, Lara. Uh, Frida, um, would you tell us what does international socialist feminist solidarity mean to you? How can we promote it by connecting our struggle? Sure, thank you all. Uh, um, so, I agree with uh, Lara that how we organize should also reflect our vision of an alternative to capitalist patriarchy racism. And in that spirit, so I have a few comments. 
Um, I think to me, international social feminist solidarity means that we reach out to all women's struggles around the world that implicitly or explicitly oppose capitalism, racism, and sexism. That we oppose both US imperialist war threats and other global imperial imperialist powers such as China and Russia and support the emancipatory struggles against all these powers. It means that we reach out to both Kurdish and Arab women fighting against the Assad regime and religious fundamentalists in Syria, to our Palestinian, uh, Iranian, Sudanese, Algerian, African-American, Latina, Chinese, Russian, and Indian sisters. Currently, the Alliance of Middle Eastern and North African Socialists is promoting a campaign in solidarity with uh, men of feminist political prisoners. The brochure for this campaign features a selection of amazing women from Syria, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Palestine, and Algeria. You can print a copy of the brochure and find ways of demanding the immediate release of these women by writing about them in your blogs, websites, local newspapers, or talking about them at your meetings and conferences, and most importantly, connecting them to feminist struggles in your own country. And I'll just name a few. Um, Nasrin so today, a human rights attorney in Iran, uh, faced, uh, faced a 38-year sentence for defending women who took the, uh, um, a hijab uh, off in public. Uh, Sebahat Tunal, a, for, a former Turkish member of the parliament, a member of the pro-Kurdish HDP and Democratic Regions Party, <clears throat> serving a 15-year sentence for being a women's rights activist uh, in Turkey. Isra Al-Qomqam, a human rights defender from Saudi Arabia, who until recently faced the death penalty. Um, Syrian socialist feminists such as Samir Khalil and Razan Zaytuna, who opposed both, the Assad, opposed both the Assad regime and religious fundamentalists, were abducted six years ago and have disappeared since then. Uh, many other Syrian, uh, Syrians dying and, and rotting, practically rotting in uh, Assad's prisons. Uh, and also in prisons of uh, religious fundamentalists uh, in Syria, um, other Kurdish women who've been killed by uh, the uh, assaulted, killed by the uh, all the all the powers in the region, as well as the, and, and Tur Turkey's invasion of northern Syria to assault uh, the uh, whatever uh, efforts were made for uh, toward Kurdish self determination. And there are others in the brochure there. As we're speaking, there are uh, Iranian political prisoners, including some feminists like Sepide Golian, uh, Sanaz Alahyari, um, who are on, on trial for uh, sedition and uh, promoting propaganda against the regime. Uh, they're being put on trial alongside labor leaders. So, um, and then, of course, there are other, uh, I can't even possibly mention everyone in the brochure or others, uh, including the Pakistani woman, Golali Ismail, who is underground right now, um, hiding underground um, because the Pakistani military is after her for publicizing the rapes of women by the military. So I agree that we need an international socialist feminist effort uh, to uh, both to demand the release of these feminists and to address the issue of political prisoners in the context of expanding capitalist authoritarianism and its carceral system. And I agree with Sarah that we shouldn't limit ourselves to women who consider themselves feminists, that the majority of women prisoners are actually there for 
either economic reasons for not paying their debts or, or their husband's debts, or for um, fighting an abusive uh, husband or boyfriend and, and being put in jail for it. And some of them have their children there with them too. So Sarah, thank you for mentioning that. And that should be included in our solidarity with prisoners. Uh, another very important er arena for international socialist feminist solidarity, as I mentioned earlier, is the Me Too movement. Uh, by opposing sexual uh, assault and abuse, the Me Too movement is implicitly or explicitly challenging capitalism's objectification, reification, and commodification of women's bodies. Its challenge, however, cannot be answered within the context of capitalism, private or state capitalism. At the same time, it compels socialist feminists to theorize the kind of abolition of capitalism that can overcome relations based on objectification and domination. So we need an international socialist feminist dialogue on what is new in the Me Too movement and what socialist feminists can offer it in terms of an alternative. And to, to end, uh, just one last uh, sentence. The fact that some socialist organizations have been breaking up in face of the lack of concern for sexual abuse and rape shows how deep and urgent this issue is for socialist feminists. Thank you so much, Frida. Now I would like to take a few questions from the Facebook audience and any speaker uh, who is happy to answer would be Great. Uh, the first question is, to what degree are the uprisings adopting anti-capitalist socialist goals and to what degrees are working class women helping lead the struggle to build a view that is both feminist and socialist? Which uprisings? The Sudanese and Algerian uprisings, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Selma or Sarah? Their microphones are muted. Sarah, your uh, microphone is uh, muted. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, there are many streams within the uprising. I think that's one thing that's important to, to, to highlight. Um, um, there are demands that are uh, very widely shared by many of the different streams. For example, um, um, in Sudan, there is a very strong uh, consensus that uh, a new Sudan would be one where um, it is not uh, possible, as it is now, as very common now, to die from a lack of healthcare. Um, or, or, or to have access uh, to no education. Um, and so particularly around the issues of healthcare and education, there is a very kind of anti-capitalist stance. And I would say a stance where um, there is a, a, a strong reaction to the ways in which the state has, um, with a cooperation of its, on its own, not only in relation to the, um, not only in relation to sort of privatization, uh, land, uh, essentially land theft, you know, giving up contracts to different countries for land, 
for 99 years or more in a country that's incredibly land in uh, food insecure and the actual uh, destruction of um, the livelihoods of uh, rural workers and, and, and so forth. Um, however, there are also very strong streams within the, within the revolution, particularly I would say within some of the parties that are now kind of been placed as the transitional, you know, uh, as, as, as elements of this trans new transitional government that is expected to, 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 to uh, take power. Um, that espouse a neoliberal um, capitalist vision. So for example, you, and I've talked about this before, you have this, there's been this idea that's been promoted very strongly in the country that, you know, if we only had technocratic people in charge of the government, then uh, that would already be enough, right? And this is a reaction to um, ministers and so forth being appointed who don't actually have uh, any competencies in the field and they work. But of course, technocrat doesn't tell you anything in terms of politics, right? It doesn't tell you whether this is a redistributive, it's going to be a redistributive economy. It doesn't tell you whether there is going to be any real structural change, for example, in terms of land reform. It doesn't tell you much. And so while there are streams within um, the, the revolution that are anti-capitalist, as a whole, this is going to be a terrain of contestation in the next period. Um, and I think that is something that uh, is important because revolutions are treated as events, as periods of time that essentially, you know, it's a, essentially looked at in the narrow way of a government being brought down in order to make way for a different government. And an anti-capitalist struggle would go much deeper than that. And so, you know, it, it, it's still an issue that will be decided. I mean, what is this new Sudan going to look like, right? Um, and that is an arena of contestation, and a lot of it depends on building the kind of um, mainstream and, and the kinds of widespread movements that are that have a, an advanced kind of anti-capitalist analysis, intersection analysis that then you know really pushes for the country to go in that direction. So much of the focus has been to just get the military out, and there hasn't been as much conversation as to the fact that the word civilian doesn't tell you much in terms of what kind of society you will build. But there's a lot of conversations and a lot of different points of view and a lot of contestation in this regard. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Uh, Selma, would you like to add anything? OK, um, I'll ask the second question. Uh, from the audience, Facebook audience, as touched on by some of the um, panelists, NGOs have become the dominant model of organizing and resisting for women and other social justice issues. What can be the alternative model and what needs to happen to push for them? I'm sorry, Fatih, I didn't hear the first part of the question. Would you please? Okay, sure, sure. As touched on by some of the panelists, NGOs have become the dominant model of, model of organizing and resisting for women's and other social justice issues. What can be the mo alternative model and what needs to happen to push for them? Um, sure, Julia. 
Yes, I think that um, the NGOs have really developed as a way to undermine um, or blunt a lot of the, the political struggles that have happened and to kind of steer them away, especially from an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist model because these NGOs are being funded by banks, by, you know, supposedly, um, what is it called? Sympathetic capitalists or, you know, like that's, that's not acceptable. Um, we cannot expect to have, be funded uh, to fight our oppression by people who benefit from that oppression. And so some of the organizing, it, I think uh, Sarah may have touched upon this idea of that things that are thought of as new are actually old and have happened a long time ago before NGOs developed, which developed as a strategy to undermine, like I said, class struggle organizing. Before those happened, we had organizations like the Black Panthers. We had organizations around the world fighting colonial struggles that received not one penny from imperialist powers and were not funded by Wells Fargo or Chase Bank or any of those groups. And so we need to kind of return to that perspective of being self-organized and self-funded like unions, like other political organizations. And we can do that. Um, working class people have done it and they've, they've done it a, for a long time. So I think we need to break from that. I know for us, um, the small struggle that is happening in, in Inglewood where I live, the majority black and brown city um, was virtually ignored until they decided to build a stadium, the Ram stadium, whatever. So there's nonprofits that are funded by, that you know call themselves ten, tenant organizing or whatever, and they're funded by Chase Bank. They, were, they literally received money, received money from them. And so they said, you know, they didn't want to challenge our city's mayor. Uh, they didn't want to call it a conflict, even though people are being evicted, especially elderly black women in particular are losing their homes. Women with disabilities who are on fixed incomes are being kicked out of their homes and to the streets or to their cars. And so, and, and they don't want to, they don't want to come hard on these people because they receive money from Chase Bank, which is already being targeted for reparations because of their part of participation in slavery, not to mention the housing crisis. So to me, it's, it's not a complicated answer, but it's a complicated problem because we don't have a lot of money. Um, but the answer is that we have to break from the NGOs and in particular, have to break from groups like the Democratic Party, who may have people like Bernie Sanders who are a bit more progressive than others, but are still tied and wedded to that same political system. So to me, the answer is we need to break from those groups and form our own political organizations. For those of us who are members of unions, pressure our unions to fund political grassroots organizing rather than the Democratic Party. Um, it's our dues. We need to use our dues and workers' money towards working class issues, um, but also to kind of point out and expose these ties between NGOs that claim to have social justice in mind and are actually being funded by the same groups that are oppressing us in this country and worldwide. 
Thank you so much, Julia. Any uh, other speaker would like to add? Sarah, please go ahead. Um, I think the, 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 the Sudanese revolution exposed an interesting uh, model. Um, because there are millions of Sudanese who live in the diaspora in different, with different legal statuses, different socioeconomic backgrounds, class backgrounds, and so forth. But um, there was a, a kind of looking to ourselves to support the revolution financially, as opposed to trying to appeal to, to others. And in part, that was, I think, it, it partly was a strategy because for so long, um, the regime has had used the sort of specter of, uh, as many regimes in the region do, of foreign interference and so forth. Of course, they're the main ones receiving billions of dollars in weapons uh, transfers and in cash transfers and in, in with, with which to carry out the violence that they've been carrying out. But um, the diaspora managed to raise hundreds of thousands of, 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 of dollars through like donations from people who don't make a lot of money, most of them. And it went to very specific things like treating the injured, like uh, trying to provide for people during Ramadan because uh, there was, you know, a fear that the, the, the heat, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a very hot country. You know, you, you would, how would people be able to sustain an occupation of an area, you know, during that period of time? And that, and, and the idea was also to sort of model in the occupation, in the sitting, a different type of society where you had classes for street children that had never had access to education before. You had field clinics where doctors were volunteering to work. You had artists that were working there. You had people that were cooking. And all of that was funded by the diaspora and by people within the country themselves who uh, did it through their own labor and through their self-help and through using concepts in the culture like some a concept for us called nafir, for example, which is you'll find variations of it in many countries in the region, but it's when you call your neighbors and your community to help you do something. Um, for example, in the rural areas to harvest or to do something like that. And this concept, people, you know, got inspiration, drew inspiration from these concepts. They weren't just looking for some Western NGO to save them. They actually rejected, uh, for example, um, the uh, uh, trucks of aid that were sent by the Saudi regime and the, uh, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates regimes, which were funding the military to kill the protesters. But, you know, with the other hand, sending uh, aid and they rejected them out, you know, they, they kicked them out of the site of the sitting. I think the question is, how do you sustain this uh, kind of collective solidarity in moments of non-revolution as well, right? Um, how do you get people to also uh, take on the issue of those women who are in jail for brewing alcohol as much as they are taking on the issue of those who are shot, um, shot and injured by the security services? These are the questions, but I think the models are out there. And I think it's a question of expanding people's notions of solidarity and of their role beyond in the, in the US where I also grew up beyond electoral periods um, or beyond very specific crises into a, a more of an everyday politics of, of, of solidarity and collective aid. And, and as Julia said, I mean, we have in the US, you have uh, the Black Panthers, you have many organizations, not many, but some that 
you know, a big part of their politics was the community coming together to take care of the community. So we really have to, uh, to, to, to really tap into those. And I think even with the NGOs, there are people, I've seen feminists in Sudan who use these NGOs in such a clever way. I mean, they uh, use them in a more, they use the platforms in a more subversive manner than uh, their grant uh, applications would suggest, or they use them as a way of subsidizing themselves while they do their activism. I still agree with Julia that the model itself is highly problematic and it's a deep, it's a anti-politics machine, the NGO. It's a, it's a, it's a way of depoliticizing struggles and demands and turning NGOs into service providers or you know, advocacy machines for particular issues within certain boundaries. But I think they are also, uh, there's a lot of agency also in the way that um, many feminists particularly um, engage with these NGOs and use them as well. And, and, and the instrumentalization is two ways in some, in some cases. Thank you so much, Sarah. Since we are running out of time, I would like to thank all the speakers and the audience Thanks to Isabel Barter, Sina Zekovat, and Shirin Akram Bushar for their technical management of the live stream. Finally, uh, this, I think this was a very productive panel today. I learned a lot from all of you. Finally, I'd like to uh, welcome viewers to send their questions, suggestions, and ideas to the Facebook, uh, Facebook page of Alliance of Menial Socialists. Or uh, you can also email, uh, send us email address to our email address of uh, Alliance of Mena Socialists, in, uh, which is info at allianceofmesocialists.org. Thank you all. Thank you, Fatim.